and uh, he'll tell you what it is. We'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, says to the cities of Judah. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Amen. Thank you for reading that. It's good to be with you today. I am delighted to look at the book of Isaiah with you. I was scheduled to go to Myanmar. Uh, when was that? First, of, first week of October. But my wife had a miscarriage, so I had to cancel that. But I was going to take this book and teach it to pastors in the... Well, in Myanmar, I'm not supposed to tell you where. But in Myanmar for a week. And so I studied this great, glorious book for weeks on end. And my short, it was kind of a last-minute decision. They asked me to go do it. And so I had about five or six weeks to study. And just so, was so enriched by it. And so I have enjoyed preaching through it on different occasions. But what I want to do is I want to start you out by taking you to Isaiah 5, with the backdrop of what Keith just read there in Isaiah 40. And the title of the message this morning is, Christ is the comfort that God graciously gives judgment-deserving sinners. Christ is the comfort that God graciously gives judgment-deserving sinners. But look at Isaiah chapter 5, because this is the context of the nation of Israel when Isaiah is prophesying some 700 years before Christ. 
in Isaiah 5, verse 1. Isaiah 1 through 5 is the preface to his entire prophecy. Isaiah prophesied some 60 years and compiled this book, the prophetic book of Isaiah together, and so he gives a preface here in chapters 1 through 5. But look at chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. So this is Yahweh speaking, the God of Israel, God of everything, but by his covenant name, Yahweh. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. Or maybe some of you have a translation that says rotten grapes. That's the idea. God dug and prepared this vineyard who was the nation of Israel. He planted a vineyard to bear fruit, to bear grapes. And that's the expectation. But it bore stinking, rotten grapes. Verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? For hundreds of years. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield rotten grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up in it. I will also command the clouds that, the rain, that they rain no rain upon it, for the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So God says, what else was there to do for my vineyard? But to tear it down. In the book of Deuteronomy, when the law was given to the nation of Israel, Moses set before them a blessing and a curse. If you obey me, keep all of my law, I will bless you, but if you reject it, then I will curse you. Another nation will come in, and they'll take over your land, and they'll cart you off. And then Moses says, oh, by the way, when this happens, <laughs> which says, you are going to do this. So that's where we are in the history of the nation. Isaiah prophesies for all these years. He stands to them. And then, just for an example, in the next chapter, what was the message of Isaiah to these people when his prophetic call is initiated? This is what you go say to them, verse, verse 9 of chapter 6. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, 
and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, yikes! How long? <laughs> How long had I preached like that? And he said, until cities lie waste. That's how long. Without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes far away. Removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is a stump. So that's the picture, the vineyard. That's how long you're going to preach until it's all done. So throughout the book, Isaiah prophesies of judgment for 39 chapters. Judgment, judgment, judgment. And all throughout it, he sprinkles in messianic hope. In chapter 2, you see it. Chapter 4, you see it. Chapter 7, a virgin will conceive and a, a son will be born. You'll name him Emmanuel, a God is with us. Chapter 9, the government will rest on his shoulders. He'll be called the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father. In chapter 11, the whole tree is going to be felled. But there's going to be a stump, and out of the stump it's going to sprout. And the king's going to come out of there. So all the way through those sprinkling, sprinkling of a Messiah coming and a kingdom being restored. But how long until it's all done? He said it like this. He said, the flood is coming, and the flood was the nation of Assyria. Wicked, ruthless, just awful. Anybody want to see how bad they are? Go look on the internet, Google search, ancient Assyria warfare. Just awful. And they came in, he said, it's gonna, the flood's going to come in through the land. They, they just, just decimated Israel. Come into Judah all the way up to the neck. That's Isaiah's language. And he's going to spare Jerusalem. And he does. Chapters 37 through 39, Hezekiah's time. This massive revival takes place. And God spares them. And the angel of the Lord, I believe is Christ, comes and just by his sovereign acting slays 185,000 of Sennacherib, king of Assyria's army. And he goes back with his tail between his legs and his sons kill him. Just like that. But not until the entire land is devastated. And then right on the heels of that as Hezekiah dips into a major problem that is being addressed in this book, and that is this, trust me. And he doesn't, and he leans a little bit toward Babylon, and he invites these envoys in, they see his treasures, and Isaiah prophesies, the nation of Babylon is going to come in and cart the rest of you off. And the kingly line is going to stop, because he says, your sons will be made eunuchs there. Wow. So it's this devastating stop to this nation with so much hope given to it at its onset. What's going to happen to the nation of Israel? It's interesting, chapters 1 through 39 are primarily a message of judgment, and they're sprinkled with this messianic hope 
and kingdom restoration, but chapters 40 through 66 is primarily a message of deliverance through God's Messiah, who is the servant of Yahweh. The servant that Israel is called a servant. They were supposed to be a servant of Yahweh. They failed. And yet there's going to be a true servant who comes in and he's going to bring deliverance. You know what's amazing? This is really interesting. How many books are there in the Old Testament? 39. How many in the New Testament? Isaiah 1 through 39 is a catalog of the nation of Israel's history and the Longing glimpses of prophetic insight to the Messiah. 39 chapters. Ending Babylon. Prophetic voice over with. Chapters 40 through 66, 27 books. The fulfillment with the Messiah. Old Testament, New Testament. This is before they even had chapters in there. But it's amazing how it parallels like that. So here you have an Old Testament almost replica and a New Testament replica with the fullest picture of the atoning work of Christ in all the Bible in Isaiah 53. It's amazing. But my point this morning in chapter 40 with just kind of that summary picture of the context is how Isaiah the prophecy turns in chapter 40. Listen to these words. Remember in his prophetic call, chapter 6, just the strength of severe, ye, in your face prophecies that would fill his ministry? But notice the difference. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is over and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So, let me just tell you what I think is going on as this passage, verses 1 through 11, unfolds. In chapter 40, the immediate comfort is seen in the deliverance of God's people from Babylonian captivity by Cyrus, king of Persia, who in the next few chapters, Isaiah is going to say, this is God's servant. Amazing. Some pagan king with no concern for God or his people and God says, that's going to be my servant. He's not even around yet. In an empire that's not ruling yet. He said, that's going to be my servant. And he's going to deliver you. He's going to restore you here. All along in the first 39 chapters, Yahweh keeps saying this. Don't turn to other nations. Trust me. I can deliver you. Because this wicked empire is just swallowing up kingdoms everywhere. And one of the reasons they were so vile by hanging the heads of their victims on the post or cutting off limbs or skinning them alive was to tell everybody else, you think you're going to escape? No, this is what's going to happen to you if you resist. 
So you can feel the terror in the people and the temptation to go to another nation and form an alliance to protect them. And Yahweh says, don't go there. Trust me. But they had forsaken him. Trust me, I can deliver you. They failed and failed and failed and failed and judgment just kept coming. But now he's saying the same thing again. Trust me. I know you got yourself where you are, but I'm going to deliver you from your captivity. This is the story of God in humanity. I'm deliverer. What's another word for deliverer? Savior. He's just painting the picture all over the Bible. I am your Savior. You can't save yourself. You can't find meaning in your life, in yourself. You can't deliver yourself with giving yourself some kind of value. I can. Trust me. And so here he is, and I think the immediate context is, I'm going to deliver you like that. But, and that's in verse 2, tell her, cry to her, prophetic word, cry to her, cry out to her, her warfare is ended. She's received from Yahweh's hand, double for all sins. Judgment's come, it's over with. But there's something beyond this. That's the nearest fulfillment. But there's something way greater as the fulfillment here. Notice what he says. Her iniquity is pardoned. Cyrus did not pardon their iniquity. And their being disciplined did not pardon their iniquity. So there is something telescopic that is far greater. He's pointing to the fulfillment in the Messiah, God's true servant. And that's why he brings the words comfort here. Now do you get my title? Christ is the comfort that God graciously gives judgment-deserving sinners. And this one that this, these two verses point to would come to its fulfillment, its climax, in chapter 53. So one of the things I'm trying to get you to see is, go back and own the book of Isaiah. It's such a major prophetic work that springboards the New Testament. So much theology in here. So much theology of atonement, of Christ, everything. Eschatology, so much in here. So go back and dig into this book. But notice, in this chapter, when God wants to comfort His people, and here's my main thrust here, is He brings the gospel to them. Folks, that's us. When God wants to comfort us, He brings the gospel to us. He brings Christ to us. There is no other comfort outside of Christ and the gospel. And... As Keith read, look at verse 11. This is just kind of painting the picture, then we're going to dive into it. In this comfort, in Christ, verse 11, He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those who nurse. So all the overtones in verse 11 of the Lord, of Yahweh, Shepherding his people with tenderness and intimacy are fulfilled in Christ, who's the good shepherd in John chapter 10. 
So here's the question I pose. If I'm a sinner, and all I can expect from God for my sin is judgment, banishment, exile, and being forsaken, then how can God comfort me? Because that's where the nation of Israel is right now. That's all they can get from God. Because in chapter 1, he says, basically, I've had it. Judgment is coming. You're worse than an ox. At least an ox knows who his owner is. You don't know me. My people don't know me. They've forsaken me. In Jeremiah, the indictment, they've forsaken Yahweh, who is the fountain of living waters. Why would you want to leave the fountain of living waters and go and have a broken system that can't even hold water? That's the tragedy of our situation. Is we've rejected the fountain of living waters. What's left for us? And that's the question. If I'm a sinner, and all I can expect from God for my sin is judgment, banishment, exile, and being forsaken, then how can God comfort me? Or how does God comfort a sinner? And the answer is twofold, as our text plays out for us. First of all, it's through His Word. First of all, comfort is through His Word. And this is essential. I would say it's without exception either by direct hearing of His very words or by derivative reference to them. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. And Peter uses this exact passage within chapter 40, 1 Peter 1, 23. You were saved not by perishable seed, but imperishable seed, which is the living and abiding Word of God. So first of all, comfort comes through His Word. And second, it is through the message of God's Word. This book is His Word. But there's a message in here. It's the message that threads the entire thing. The book is the telling of the message. But the message is the saving events accompanying God's Son's coming. The Gospel. Now, let's see this in our text. First of all, God comforts us by coming right into our hearts through the person of Jesus Christ. God comforts us by coming right into our hearts through the person of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 3 through 5. So, Isaiah, I mean, you can see the tone change in chapter 40. Comfort. Bring comfort to my people. What's the comfort? A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. The mouth of Yahweh has spoken. 
That's amazing. Notice the emphasis upon the word of God in verses 1 through 2. He says, uh, verse 1, says your God. Verse 2, speak tenderly. Cry to her. When God wants to comfort his people, he brings his word to them. Verse 3 picks up that same emphasis. A voice cries. God has a message of comfort to us. But you know what? We can't hear it unless we hear from Him. You know what I'm talking about? When the trials come and they squish and they squeeze, and for some reason, we haven't heard from Him. Maybe days or weeks. We're just drowning in our sorrow or the suffering or the affliction. And we can't hear His comfort unless we hear from Him. Hear! But before we unpack how the comfort unfolds, look at verse 5. And I want to kind of go backwards with this. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Whatever this comfort is, it is called the glory of the Lord. The glory. It is the honor of His name and the display of His power. And this will be for the comfort of His people. So here's a question to add in there. Why should we thirst for the glory of God? You do thirst for it. Maybe the, a, a preface question would be, why should you pursue satisfying your thirst with His glory? Because you're always thirsting. You can't get away from it. You were made with this thirst with inside you. But why should we thirst for the glory of God? Because it is the comfort for our souls. When you think of the glory of God, it is His great, it is what makes Him famous. A person's glory, human glory, is attached to whatever made them famous. Their abilities. Maybe their character, their leadership. But God's glory is not like that. And so His glory is what makes Him famous. And we need to think on what makes Him famous. That is what feeds our soul. And so God knows that. That's why He brings this in here. But He says that this that He brings to us is the glory of the Lord. Hold that thought. and We're going to come back to it because it's really unique how this unfolds for us. In verses 3 through 4, it describes the coming of a king to a people. In the ancient world, there would be a herald, a crier that came to them and said, the king's coming in here. Fix your old dirty, bumpy roads. Make it a level place. Because you want to, the, the king's coming. Let his entry come with smoothness. So the messenger goes forth. But here, the king would be Yahweh himself. Yahweh is coming. 
And the road would be a highway through human hearts. What a picture. Remember I said chapters 1 through 39 pictures the Old Testament? Everything's on hold and you're waiting. And when you flip the page of Malachi and you come to the New Testament, who's the first voice on the scene? Tell me. John the Baptist. And what's he saying? This message right here. The king's coming. The kingdom of God is at hand, which means the king's here. And I'm coming to foretell it. I'm sent ahead of him to, to preach as a prophet to plow through your hearts so that you will be ready to receive the king. Amazing, isn't it? But to really hone in on these verses, go over to Luke 3. And let's look at, by the way, what time I got to be done? 12 o'clock? Okay. Or just before that, right? Luke chapter 3, verse 2. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, right where we're reading, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. By the way, the translation from the Septuagint says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. The Hebrew reads like this, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's part of the... The message, which is the way the ESV translates it. Just a side note. Anyway, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places become level ways, and all flesh will see. Notice how the Septuagint translates this, because that's the way it reads here in our English. They shall see the salvation of God. What did it say back in Isaiah they shall see? Every eye shall see the, the glory of the Lord. You get the connection? This is His glory. The New Testament writers were fine with leaving it like this because this is His glory. It's the greatest display of His glory. What made God famous? His creative acts, right? I mean, that's not a small thing to Speak all this stuff into existence. But this is a greater act of His glory. Is the salvation work for sinners. Oh, it's huge. Of all the things that God could pull off, this is massive. But also, look at verse uh, I think it's 18. Look at verse 18. So with many other exhortations, He... John the Baptist preached good news to the people. Notice the emphasis on the Word of God in these verses we just read. Proclamation, forgiveness of sins, exhortations, preaching, and good news. And then we saw in verse 6, the glory of God is equated with the salvation of God. So God's comfort for sinners is His own glory, particularly His salvation work. Now, so what I'm trying to paint the picture is that when God says, I want to comfort you, the opening 
is of Christ and all tied to the fulfillment when he comes. That's how he says, I'm going to speak comfort to you. Man, look what I'm about to do. Fix your eyes on this. I've got something that will satisfy your broken souls. You know why this is so important? Because these people never taste of it in their lifetime. This is 700 years before it's going to happen. How is this going to be? Co- everything bad's still going to happen for these people. And God says, you tell them comfort. How does God comfort his people? He may not take away your pain in this lifetime. That's not necessarily the answer, but God says, I can comfort you. And it's through Christ and the gospel. It's always so to the end of time when it gets really dark in the book of Revelation. This is God's comfort for us. But just finally, what was the purpose of the man John the Baptist? Luke 1 tells us very explicitly that his ministry was to turn the hearts of God's people back to him and thus prepare the way for the Messiah. And for his identity, John the Baptist took this text in Isaiah 40 to himself. And then his prophetic ministry reached its completed purpose in John 1.29. Listen, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when God wanted to comfort his people, he gave them the gospel. This is so huge. The way all this ties together. This is the message of comfort. He gave them his word, which spoke of all the promises being fulfilled in the coming of his son and the coming and what his coming would accomplish. Thus, it's salvation. It's forgiveness of sins. Remember what he said in verse two? You tell her, speak to her tenderly, but you tell her her iniquity has been pardoned. I've done it. It's amazing. Think of what a storied past that Israel had. They forfeited every right to represent Yahweh before the world, which was what they were to do in Exodus 19. You're to be a kingdom of priests, a holy priesthood, a people for me to represent me before the world. And they never did it. So what right could they have a nation had disgraced this glorious God who'd given them so much what could be done for them it's interesting how Isaiah progresses this prophecy because Isaiah 51 builds up the tension even more than what's been unfolded so far and it revisits this exact same scenario What could be done for a people so shameful and deserving of judgment? And then in Isaiah 52, 1 through 10, I wish we had time to just just walk through that text. Go back and look at it. It answers the question and the resounding power with this statement. The arm of Yahweh 
has delivered. Remember the times in the Old Testament where he said, he bore his holy arm. It's like rolling up your sleeve and flexing your muscles to deliver. So when did he do that in, its, in Israel's history? When did he really show off his arm? Somebody tell me. The great event in the Old Testament. Parting of the seas, which is the, and the exodus. But here he says, oh no. I've done something so great that that pales by comparison. My deliverance for you is so great. But what is this bearing of his arm? The suspense just builds and builds throughout the prophecy. It's almost as you read through chapter 52, you're going, wow, he's done it. But what did he do? How did he do it? And then chapter 53 opens up. Because he kept talking about how he had done it through his servant. My servant is going to deliver you. My servant is going to conquer. How did he conquer? Look at verse 5 of chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Remember chapter 40, verse 1 or 2? Her warfare has ended. His chastisement brought us that peace. And with his wounds, we were healed. Wow. This is how God bore his powerful arm. The Almighty became a servant to the utter weakness of a most humiliating death by the sentence of a criminal, as a criminal, under the curse of God, as Galatians 4 says, 3 and 4 says. He became our curse all the way down. That's how he bore his arm. That's how he bought salvation for Israel. And that's how he bought salvation for us. But rewind all the way back to Isaiah 40. The comfort of this text is said to be carried out from a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. How could this be comfort? Because this is prophecy. It's the word of God. I'm going to do this. You're going to have to put your faith here. It's 700 years ahead of time. You can't see any of it. You're just going to have to rest in my promise that I'll carry this out. They never saw a glimpse of it. Except through the eyes of faith that God's word had said so. And that's what the answer is in verse 5. This one phrase, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Wow. Because it's dark and they're looking at this and they're like, what do you mean comfort? No, no. Let me put a punctuation here. I said so. 
It's going to happen. That's why I said that it is tied to the Word of God. God comforts us by coming right into our hearts through the person of Jesus Christ. And I say so. I say it's going to happen. You know what? It's no different for us because we look backwards. We know He's come. But how do I know all of these things about Him and all that that accomplished? How do I know that God's wrath has been put off forever for me when all I deserve is His wrath? How do I know that in my suffering here, God is in the infinite realm of pleasure that He has created me for and saved me for? He said so. That's how. So we have to pick it up. And hear how he has said it a thousand times over. Isn't this the great struggle of human beings? What we see or think versus what God has said, right? So the link is the same for us. Believe the word of God that your iniquity is pardoned because Jesus came and paid for it. No matter where you are this morning, if Christ is your Savior, no matter what dump, dumpster you came out of this week, if Christ is your Savior, turn to Him, rest in this promise. So first of all, God comforts us by coming right into our hearts to the person of Jesus Christ. And second, God comforts us, God bolsters our confidence in the gospel through bringing the certainty of His eternal word to our hearts. God bolsters our confidence in the gospel, which is what we just dove off of, through bringing the certainty of His eternal word to our hearts. And this is in verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry. So here's the prophetic word again. Verse 2, speak, cry. Verse 3, a voice cries. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? This is what you ought to say to them. All flesh is grass. And the beauty, all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. By the way, let me say it again. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Remember what I told you about Israel's struggle is. They've got this vicious world power breathing down their necks. That they've just come out of one onslaught at this point in the prophecy. But over and over again, they're asked to trust me. And who do they trust in instead? Nations made up of men. And God says, men are grass. <laughs> That's all they are. That's all they are, just grass. So in our, the question that comes to us, am I trusting in his word? Or am I trusting the wisdom of man? Do I trust his promises to bring me comfort? Or do I trust something else to get me out of this? 
And Isaiah knows this. God knows this. He gives us a message to help us with that decision. So in verse 6, he says, Man's like a little green blade of grass. Or, I often think the woman's the flower and the man's the grass. But anyway, so the other picture is a little poppy seed growing out there on the hill. And we all know what happens. And this year it's not going to happen because there's no rain. But anyway, in a normal year, what happens is the rains come, everything gets pretty and green. Everybody comes out to California. Wow, so beautiful here in March. Yeah, it's great. Just wait till June. But got, and the flowers. And then late spring, that first north wind comes. Well, that's what happened up north. I guess it's northeast. Well, whatever. The wind, dry wind blows out of the hills. And they're gone. That's what we are. And he's saying, that's what the United States is. Or Rome. Or Egypt. Or Russia. Or China. Or any other kingdom in the world ever has been a little green blade of grass and I blow on it and it's over with. Where is Egypt? Where is Assyria? Where's Rome? Where is the United States going to be? Just like everybody else someday. Don't put your hope there. They can't save. They can't deliver. Or where's your bank account? They can't deliver. Or for all of us, where is your idol? It can't deliver. It's just like a little blade of grass or a flower. And there's something that is so sovereign over that grass, the wind. But notice how the picture unfolds. The wind, the breath of the Lord, the Spirit, who is the Lord, who breathes this book, right? The metaphors are just coming together. God does not want us to miss the metaphor at the end of verse 8. He says, the grass is the people. The breath of the Lord is different. Where He wills and breathes the very Word of God, the Spirit does this. The people wither and dry out. The people droop down. (laughs) Right? (laughs) We droop and sag and wrinkle and just fade off the scene and go to the dirt. Amazing. But the Word of our God stands forever. You hear it echoing? The word of our God stands forever. 700 years before so, it all came to pass. Every bit of it. The king who would deliver them from Babylon to Jerusalem, called by name in the next few verses, Cyrus. So put your confidence here and be comforted in the message of the word. The message is this. God has accomplished everything necessary to pay for your sins in the work of his son, 
Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's, that's unfolded so clearly in the next few chapters, climaxing in 53. He did it. We couldn't buy our pardon. God did by becoming a man, the man Jesus, and He bought it by His death on our behalf. So you can either trust the eternal, unchanging Word of God which says these promises about the Gospel, or you can trust the flowery thoughts of a man that fade away as sure as his life fades when the wind blows on it. So God comforts us by coming right into our hearts through the person of Jesus Christ. Second of all, God bolsters our confidence in the gospel through bringing the certainty of His eternal word to our hearts. And last, God comforts His people through the saving events of His Son, which are the gospel, so that we can joyfully proclaim this good news to the world. You see the end? God comforts His people through the saving events of His Son. He does that in our hearts through the Gospel so that we can joyfully proclaim this good news to the world. Look at verses 9-11. through 11. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Wow! He's saying, guess what? You have something to say that's really good news. Let me just paint the opposite picture. Look back in chapter 39, verse 5. Remember what I, I told you this, but let's look at it. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Everything. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Wow. It's over with. That's the last word, as they're hearing this, that they've gotten there stomach. Oh, get up on a high mountain and proclaim good news. What good news? But sandwiched in there is this picture of the gospel. You see how it works? Sinner, dark, dirty, my life filled with muck. My life a mess because of my choices. The financial situation I'm in, my marriage is a wreck. And then God shines the light of the glory of Christ in our hearts. We see Him as our Savior. We believe. We've got a new entitlement. Now I'm a son or daughter of the King. I'm a righteous person now. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Nothing has changed around me. And immediately we go out and we start talking about this good news. Because the gospel of Christ hit us. That's what he says. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. You preacher of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and don't be scared. <laughs> Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. 
Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules with him. Remember how we talked about that? And then chapter 52, he's bore his holy arm and it's all seen clearly in 53 in the sufferings of Christ. He's done it. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those he nurse. The boldness and the exuberance of our proclamation is from our certainty of God and his word and what his word is about. And the opposite is also true. The weakness and lack of passion of our proclamation is from our uncertainty of God and His Word and what His Word is about. They go hand in hand. Which brings us all back to just one simple thing. Believing Him and His promises about this Christ and what He has accomplished. The degree that that has worked its way into the fabric of our souls in belief is the degree that we fulfill the mission of proclaiming good news. Because it's good news to the degree that we believe it. And when we're staggering back from that, it's no longer good news to us. Maybe it's boring. But when the good news of the gospel has comforted and freed our hearts, we shout it from the housetops in verse 9. The easiest way to trump the silencing effects of fear is to believe and experience the joy of the gospel. Notice that little phrase there in the middle of verse 9, lift it up, fear not. There is a far greater influencing power to motivate us than fear because of a commandment. It's joy experienced in the depths of our soul by the forgiveness of God. Justifying a dirty sinner, making him nothing but clean in Christ. Wow, it's just so free. Bathing in the love that the Father has for His children. Because of the work of the Son. It frees us up to not be afraid. And that truth causes us to say something. And this is where all this ties back in. Remember verse 5? The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. And how these saving events translate out from the mouth of John the Baptist in the owning of this text from the Septuagint translation all flesh will see the salvation of the Lord. And so it causes a sinner to say, look at your God. Look what he's done. Sinner, look what he's done. Go out here in these streets or in your neighborhoods or your, fr your friends, your, your family, your co-workers. You're, you're right across neighbors. And look what he's done for you. He could just clothe you in himself and his righteousness. You can be his child forever. Wow. You can sit at his table with him through all eternity. That's the good news. Behold your God. 
The gospel of grace causes us to say, look at what God has done. And this passage just bleeds with the power of God to accomplish salvation for his people. And here is the comfort that causes rejoicing and proclaiming. But notice the promise of verse 11. He becomes our shepherd who tenderly leads his flock and he gathers his lambs in his arms and he carries them in his bosom. He gently leads those who nurse. John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am this good shepherd. As in Psalm 23, I am this good shepherd. And he calls us to himself and he tenderly brings us in. Remember Matthew, what is it? Uh, it's either 10 or 11, the familiar passage. Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, weighed down by burdens, excessive, either just your own sin that you've drug in, or the burden of trying to keep a standard that's way over you and crushes you. And Jesus says, take my yoke on you, and I will give you rest. Wow. And comfort for your souls. O oh, sinner, turn to Christ. Embrace His work on your behalf. And child of God, reacquaint yourselves every single day with the beauty of what God has for you in Christ. Receive the comfort of God by believing His Word. Believing what He said He, do, he would do for us, that He has done for us. Just like these people in the midst of unspeakable affliction, by their own sin, were to receive comfort from a prophecy 700 years to its fulfilling. Trust what he has said, because the word of our God will stand forever. Find your comfort here. Christ is the comfort that God graciously gives judgment-deserving sinners. He's a feast for our soul. Let's pray together. Lord, comfort your people as your word says that you do for us with your son. Holy Spirit, apply the ministry of your son and the ministry of your word into our hearts today. Father, grant your son's high place in our thinking, in our vision this morning for our comfort, for our rejoicing, for our strength, and for our proclamation. Grant this in us for your great glory and for the good of your people. Amen. Amen.